0: Again, note where I'm saying these cases are occurring. So it's no longer that you can think, well, I'm not living on the, the East Coast or the West Coast. Um, it's in middle America. And in the Kettle Moraine case, you know, we had a school that was secretly transitioning a child against the parents' instructions. And again, thankfully we won that case in federal court on the basis of parental rights, but we need to have more of those cases litigated to get a very clear ruling at a higher court level.
1: Welcome, Joyful Warriors, to the Joyful Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Tiffany Justice of Moms for Liberty, and today we are joined by a very special guest, a fellow Joyful Warrior. Um, I'd like to introduce you to Kristen Wagner. Kristen is uh, a prominent legal mind and the General Counsel and President of Alliance Defending Freedom, a powerhouse organization dedicated to safeguarding religious freedom, free speech, and other fundamental rights. Kristen has played a pivotal role in steering ADF's mission to protect individuals and organizations from legal challenges that arise in the intersection of faith, conscience, and the evolving landscape, landscape excuse me of civil liberties. Join us as we delve into Kristen's insights and the imp- impactful work of ADF. Kristen, welcome to the Joyful Warrior podcast. We're so excited to have you today.
0: Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for all the great work that Moms for Liberty is doing. It has been so fun to watch the impact that you've had in our nation. Wonderful. Thank you for that. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, your family a little bit. I grew up in a small town in Longview, Washington, in Washington State, not the Washington that I live in now. Um, it was a mill town. And my dad was my uh, school principal. I ended up going to a Christian school. He left public schools a couple of years into my education and served as my school principal for all the way through 12th grade. Um, and had a very integrated environment there as I grew up. My dad believed that I had a vocational call in my life from an early stage. We were a religious family and um, urged me to pursue that, to find out what that was. And so from a pretty young age, I knew that I wanted to practice law to defend free speech, religious freedom, and um, fundamental rights. And it's taken a lot of twists and turns, but we got there. So that's my journey. Wow, that's absolutely awesome. And and so you have now argued how many cases in front of the Supreme Court, Kristen? I've argued three cases in front of the Supreme Court. I spent about 16 years in private practice at a firm in Seattle before I joined ADF. And I really found that that experience was formational in helping me be ready for my current role, which is the CEO. But prior to serving at ADF as the CEO, I was the head of U.S. Legal. And so during my time there, we've had 15 Supreme Court victories in the last 12 years. Um, And as I said, I I had the privilege of arguing three of those. That's wonderful. So talk to us a little bit about the process
1: of a case arriving at the Supreme Court, that the the Supreme Court hearing a case. Like for a lot of our moms, you know, maybe you deal with a lawyer if you have a house closing, if you have some type of dispute, but we're not all looking at precedent-setting cases, right, understanding how the Supreme Court is choosing those cases. Um, So talk to us a little bit about what that process looks like.
0: Sure. Well, I can tell you, so ADF is the largest legal organization that works on these issues. And in doing so, you know we receive anywhere from 7,000 to 10,000 requests a year of people that need help. We provide our services free of charge, so we rely on donations to be able to serve our clients. Um, that goes towards what the statistics are at the Supreme Court. When you think about us getting up to 10,000 requests in a year, um, The cases that the court agrees to hear, there's only about 1% of all cases that are sent to the Supreme Court that the court agrees to hear. Uh, We have about a 30% average, or we have consistently over the years in getting the court to hear our cases, Um, but it is a tough road to go down to get the court to accept a case. And the reason is there are clear parameters that the court has in terms of what cases it will accept and the reasons why you have to demonstrate that the case has national importance, um, that there likely is a circuit conflict, for example, is another basis for it, meaning that different states and different circuits that house states are in conflict over what the law is. And you really have to demonstrate that there's a significant nationwide impact in order for the court to hear the case. But much of our work, um, we say, doesn't make the headlines. Certainly the Supreme Court cases do, but what we love to do most is to be able to help Um, organizations and people to be able to live out their convictions and um, honor their commitments in civic life. And so a lot of that work doesn't reach the headlines, but just allows us to navigate with them encroachments by the government on fundamental freedom. So let's talk about encroachments uh,
1: by the government uh, on on our freedom and liberty. Moms for Liberty, founded in 2021. I was sitting on a school board at the time, um, shocked, to be honest with you, um, at just the 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 way that the government schools that I had actually worked with, you know, for a couple of years, and seemed to be pretty accommodating, right? Seemed to be pretty um, pr- pretty much working in partnership with most families, making accommodations for kids, listening to parents, working with them. Um, not always in, in the best most in, in the best possible way, but certainly making an effort. Something changed. Um, And I think we saw that change, and I think Americans very much felt that change, right? All of a sudden we were coming to the government and we were asking for our voices to be heard through our representative government. You had representatives sometimes who were abdicating their authority uh, to people that you you couldn't hold accountable, right? So we saw this breakdown in representative government, and then people looked to the court to do the right thing, right? I think there's been a, a sense for Americans, and this is why ADF is so incredibly important, because people think, well, Maybe someone's making a, a bad decision on the ground, but when it gets to the court, when it reaches the judge, um, they'll do the right thing, right? And 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 the idea of our freedom and liberty being uh, secured and protected. But that has not been the case. We have seen uh, a really wide, uh, varying display of rulings um, where that I think has been shocking, from the very most local level. Um, and, and but you've had some su- success at the Supreme Court in that. So, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, freedom and liberty and and the role of the judicial system in safeguarding some of those things.
0: Well, you're right to say that the role of the judicial system is to safeguard our constitutional rights, and it's to interpret the Constitution faithfully with how it was originally meant to be interpreted, inconsistent with its text, with the original intent, and what people at that time understood those words to mean. That's what we mean by originalism. And you're right also to spot that It really does matter in this nation what circuit you're in and what court you're before as to what kind of justice you get in this moment. Um, There's a great, there are great differences in opinion and there are certainly judges that take their role to be activists as opposed to interpreters of the law. Thankfully, we have a Supreme Court right now that doesn't see its role as being activist and it has ruled fairly consistently um, to protect rights over the last uh, many years, actually. And in fact, the vast majority of religious freedom cases have been won at the Supreme Court, not just uh, ADF cases, but other cases as well. Free speech is the same way. Um, We don't necessarily see the Supreme Court moving as quickly as we'd like or in taking as biggest steps as we would like in their rulings. But nonetheless, freedom is being protected. In terms of what's happening at the lower court level, I think there are a lot of different ways we could take that on what we can do as American citizens to ensure that those rights are protected. And I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is knowing what those rights are is critical. Um, We can't afford You know. Anymore, moms and dads cannot afford to not know what is being taught in the classroom. We can't trust public school officials. You can't trust them to even voluntarily turn over that curriculum. And so you have to know the nuances, which is one of the reasons ADF has a parental rights toolkit that's available online that demonstrates, says, here's what the law is, here's what you can ask for, watch out for this, um, and has lots of tips. So that's one thing. A second thing is just Tenacity. Um, we have to see these things through. And again, that's something I've admired about Moms for Liberty is the encouragement to be active in your child's life and realize that that primary duty falls to you. And so, if we're tenacious, and even when we lose in the lower courts, taking those cases up because it creates a momentum. And with all the major movements, and I do want to see parental rights become a movement. We have some specific legal goals in that area here at ADF. In order to make that happen, we have to expose this, even if it means we lose sometimes in the lower courts. By exposing it, you create momentum and create a movement. And eventually, our goal here is to ensure that we have a very clear ruling from the Supreme Court, as well as very clear state laws that say parental rights are fundamental rights. But again, those laws are only as good as the people that are, one, ensuring that they're enforced, and two, are actively looking at what are our kids being taught and and ensuring that it's consistent with our values. We have to engage. Thank you for that, and,
1: and absolutely. So, if you're listening, go to the uh, ADF website, and we'll put all of the information. We'll we'll ask Kristen to share that at the end. But go and look for that parental rights resource from ADF. Also, um, read uh, the Promise to America's Children, which I'm going to ask you about in a second, Kristen. Um, but I'd like to talk about the court system a little bit more. So, just run us through. Um, you know, Moms for Liberty moms are um, bringing uh, different issues forward um, all of the time, and we've. Brought on general counsel, uh, who is working with me um, to take have a, a legal intake process, and then to work with all of these amazing uh, nonprofit um, conservative legal um, uh, firms across the United States um, to look at the cases and to see where there's value and where we can push. But one of the things that's been very interesting thing for me to learn is about the circuit court system and about the way that the the judges are appointed and, 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 you know, how decisions are made as far as uh, different law firms about how you're going to move forward with a case. And so can you talk a little bit about, you know, for the mom on the ground that's dealing with an issue, she knows that something's gone wrong. Uh, We can use like Montgomery County, uh, Maryland, for example, the Beckett Law case, right? Right. Parents came forward um, and and that local court um, said, uh, no, we're fine with parents not being able to opt out. Right. So now that's being appealed. So just if you could talk a little bit about the uh, the appeal process and you know, kind of, I feel like we're going
0: to do schoolhouse rocks, but for for uh, different uh, cases. So that would be great. Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I, I think if we're if we're going back to basics, which is always helpful, it's good to remember that we have a federal system and a state system. And in terms of the, the judiciary, um, those systems pretty much model each other. But on both sides, the state and the federal, you have the trial court, then you have a court of appeals, and then you have the Supreme Court. And we have state laws and we have federal laws. And in both of those contexts, you have a state constitution and a federal constitution. So there are a myriad of rights that parents can rely on in all of those different buckets. And there are choices that need to be made about which courts that you're filing in based on the rights that you're going to assert. I mentioned that because some states, for example, have very strong parental rights laws, while others have very weak laws. And so that's something that's important to remember as you're thinking about what to do. In addition to that, um, our federal judiciary is appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Whereas in the state system, it's usually by election, by we have a voice in who our judges are on the state side. Um, So again, it's important to understand how these judges come into place and to really know who you're voting for. Um, And that's really difficult to get that information. But if you work hard, you can. And usually one of the ways I, I look at it is, who has endorsed these particular judges because you can usually tell by who's endorsed them what their judicial philosophy is in terms of the cases themselves it's an important thing two things i would say to remember the first thing is bad facts make bad law that's kind of a universal premise among constitutional lawyers and really in all kinds of law so you do want to be careful that you have a good set of facts to set precedent on because if you have a bad set of facts you'll create bad law and that's an important thing to remember. But also I would say, remember that losing at the lower court level isn't the end of the story. In fact, many times at ADF, we say we win by losing. Um, we lose in the lower courts with the more activist judges and we continue to take it up and we win in the higher courts of appeals in the Supreme Court. So in Beckett's case, for example, Um, I'm hopeful that we will have a win in that case. We have other cases at ADF that are very similar to the story that's in Montgomery and those cases will be played out in the court system as well. So let's say that there are cases that are going into this big funnel and there are differing results among the circuits. That's going to attract the attention of the Supreme Court and that's not necessarily a bad thing. So that's a little bit about how the system works Um, And I would just encourage parents, a lot of times we can resolve these issues short of litigation. We don't have to sue and we don't want to sue if it can be resolved short of litigation. And so having good lawyers that understand what the rights are can be very helpful in dealing with government officials. So, and this is my moment where I'm
1: going to say to our moms and dads and and members uh, who are listening right now, this is why the legal intake process form is very important. Uh, We have given you a tool to be able to give us information and and documentation so that when we go to different law firms like ADF or others, we can bring them the facts of the case and what has gone on on the ground, and they can make an assessment as to the viability of the case and and, and what direction we need to take. And so um, thank you for that, that explanation. So let's dig into parental rights. Um, You're a mom. I'm a mom. Um, The idea that someone would think, the audacity, honestly, (laughs) that the government would think that they know better for my child than me and my husband is just outrageous. And yet, Time and time again, Kristen, we have seen this happening across the United States, even school districts keeping secrets from parents, having private conversations about gender identity uh, with students, right? Um, and, and so I think parents, uh, I know there have been some courts that have said that it does not shock the conscience of the court for these things to happen. But I have said before, I think it does in fact shock the conscience of parents. That this mm-hmm. is happening, um, and so um, let's talk about what what does a fundamental right mean to you? Um, because at Moms for Liberty, we very much believe that those parental rights are fundamental rights that the government doesn't give us these rights, and they can't be taken away easily. And then let's talk about the boundaries of parental rights, if we could, because there are oftentimes a lot of false arguments that are presented, um, and 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 that try to. Um, invalidate the rights of the parent, Um, you know, hypothetical situations that are used um, that I think need to be kind of put in check. So if we could discuss parental rights and and feel free, please talk about the promise to uh, America's parents as well.
0: Sure. Well, the promise to America's parents is something that a number of groups have come together on to help parents understand what their rights are. And Moms for Liberty has been very involved as a partner in that as well. Um, And it's really an educational effort and an effort to also put some pressure on our government officials to understand that they need to be making these promises to parents. Um, And that parental rights isn't something that just the right cares about or just the left, but that it really is something that we all should care about. Um, Not ceding the authority the responsibility and truly the privilege we have to shape our children's souls that's not the role of the government it's the role of the parent and the reason is in the case law which meaning the decisions that the courts have issued have recognized this many times that parents have a fundamental right to direct the education and upbringing of their children to nurture their children and that's been characterized as a fundamental right which is sort of a term of art in constitutional law meaning that If you think about our right of free speech or you think about the right of religious freedom, we call it free exercise in the First Amendment, those are considered fundamental rights as well. And when you have something that's a fundamental right, it means that essentially the government has to have an extremely compelling interest to infringe on that right. Um, that's the highest standard that you could have in the law. The strongest interest that the state could possibly have is a compelling one. And not only do they have to demonstrate that this is an exceedingly important critical interest to the state, they have to prove that it's narrowly tailored. And what that means is they have to prove there's no better way to get at this interest than to infringe on the parents' rights. So we call that strict scrutiny. But what it really means is that the burden is on the state and the presumption is with the parent, and that in nearly all cases, the parent should be winning under the law. And this is a decision that the Supreme Court has issued in saying it's a fundamental right. But unfortunately, what we have seen is some of the lower courts have muddied the waters there and have issued some wrong decisions. That's one of the reasons why we have the Center for Parental Rights, because we have a whole litigation team and a legislative team focused on this because we not only believe this is the moment to get that ruling and to get those laws in place, we believe it's critical that we do so because of this recent assault we're seeing on these rights. Uh, in terms of educational choices, as you say, we have we have about a dozen cases right now that are in active litigation that involve um, secret sex transition policies as they are applying to teachers who are saying this violates uh, my right, my ability to serve my students well, and Um, based on parents, including two cases that we just won this last year. One involved a math teacher in Indiana, of all places, who was disciplined because she declined to go along with this transition policy. Um, She won her case. And I think it's important to realize that the basis in part of that ruling was the court said, if she were to lie to the parents, she would be infringing those parental rights. So that was a critical ruling. A second ruling that we had just a couple months ago was a case in Kettle Moraine, Wisconsin. And again, note where I'm saying these cases are occurring. So it's no longer that you can think, well, I'm not living on the, the East Coast or the West Coast. Um, it's in Middle America. And in the Kettle Moraine case, you know, we had a school that was secretly transitioning a child against the parents' instructions. And again, thankfully, we won that case in federal court on the basis of parental rights. But we need to have more of those cases litigated to get a very clear ruling at a higher court level. And as you know, um, you've been a a partner in um, working through the federal legislation that we intend to have proposed and also supporting state laws. There are many ways that we can go in our own backyards to protect rights without even having to go to the U.S. Supreme Court.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And we worked with uh, Parental Rights Foundation uh, when Will Estrada was there. He helped, and we came up with a a uh, parental rights resolution, Um, and it's on our website. So if anyone's listening, um, it's a wonderful resource that you can pass a school board resolution recognizing parental rights at that very most local level, because I know for many of you, you're living in states where sometimes it feels um, a little hopeless. Uh, Kristen, during COVID, I would speak to moms in Washington state. And in Oregon and in California and. it it was almost like they didn't recognize they had parental rights anymore. Uh, The government had been so egregious in their violations. And so um, that resolution is a safeguard that you can start, again, that most local level, your backyard, asserting your parental rights, making sure everyone's talking about those rights in the same way and has the same understanding and respect for them. Um, You talked about Wisconsin and Indiana, uh, about this this ideology and this idea, right, of of the violation of parental rights rights, this overreach into our civil liberties happening, not just in California, uh, not just in New York City, but in middle America. Let's talk about that for a second, because I think um, we have a lot of people that come on the podcast uh, that talk to us about um, different things that are happening, critical theory, queer theory. Um, We've had uh, Ken Pope on talking about communism um, and and the the spread of communism. Um, We we are seeing right now, Kristen, uh, protests in the streets, uh, I call them, uh, you can call them pro-Palestine. It has felt, um, I, I, have, I have referred to them as murder parades because it does at, at times feel like a celebration of violence uh, and, and violence in and of itself. And so let's talk a little bit about the ideology that seems to have taken hold across the United States of America, where you think it's come from. Um, and then a, a little bit um, as we move forward, I'd love to discuss with you um, free speech in general and and the respect for each other's rights um when respecting the first amendment
0: sure and and i as you were talking and referencing indiana i realized that indiana is not actually the case we won that's a counselor that was fired and that case is ongoing it's kansas that we won so we're still in just one more case um so indiana kansas was i'm laughing it's sad
1: it's it's we're laughing because it's it's so absurd I mean, and if you don't laugh and say, my goodness, I mean, that you want to cry.
0: Well, it's essential that we get involved. And it is important to remember that no matter what that school says, if you're persistent, you have the right to see curriculum. You have the right in some states to um, opt out. Most states, you have the right to opt out. Some states, you have the Um, you you have to opt in if you're going to be involved in some of this controversial. So really knowing your state law, be involved with your school board, um, all of those things in terms of critical theory, which is essentially what you're going at in terms of where this is coming from. You know, when when we first started talking about critical theory, I, I would get kind of eye rolls and say, well, this is something that, you know, came out of law schools and it's just a theory. And the schools were denying that it was even in place. And And then as we went to engage in discovery, you know, started seeing what the curriculum was. I think at a basic level, um, understanding that critical theory teaches our students that it is all about the oppressor and the oppressed, and that basically all of life is about power. And you have more power if you can demonstrate you have more oppression. And oppression doesn't necessarily come from just a personal objective background, but it comes from what buckets you're in, in terms of your identity, um, whether you're a woman, what your race is, what your ethnicity is, how you identify in terms of um, gender identity. And the more, the more buckets that you fill or categories you're in, the, the more power you should have. And so really this pits kids against one another. We've seen it happen in the classrooms and it teaches them that there is no such thing as equality. Um we don't believe that all Americans have equal rights. We believe that some have more rights than others. That's what this theory teaches. You see it play out in critical race theory, but also there's critical gender theory and and that's what we're seeing work out. And we should realize that that as we have politicized education, it what it does mean is that our our officials are treating objective knowledge essentially as with skepticism and they're trying to revolutionize um, uh, the whole system in terms of redistributing power. And that's what the goal is. And I know that sounds really academic and kind of heady, but it really is quite simple. Um, And I think that in terms of what we do with that, we have to understand it and then respond to it, be able to spot it. Um, And I do want to say, if this continues, and if it takes hold in a way that permanently changes the values that we have in civil society, we will lose all of the other rights because you can't have rights if that's the system that you're working in. So what you're seeing
1: on college campuses right now, I think you have uh, generations of Americans that are saying, oh my gosh, what is going on? This rise of antisemitism across the United States, even people who are teaching in these universities, who I have seen come out and say, you know, I, I saw a Columbia professor who said, my, you know, he's an Israeli. And he said, "You know, my child wouldn't be safe here." And and you know, I think there are a lot of people that are saying, "Well, you've been teaching there, so how did you not know that this was happening, right?" But so, but you have a lot of people that are, are shocked and upset and concerned and, and didn't know this was happening. You have a, a, a generation that is totally bought in um, on these campuses. Well, I, I say totally, but they're more than we would like uh, have bought into this critical theory and this anti-Semitism and this power. Uh, decolonization struggle. Um, And then you have um, a, a generation of parents who are raising children who are shocked and dismayed and raising this next group of patriots Who are going to learn in a different and and know their country in a different way, really know their rights, know their freedoms, understand the founding principles. That's what Moms for Liberty is trying to do, right? Not only is it a movement of parents, but it is a movement of this next generation of children. Um, but when we're looking at the colleges, I mean, what parent would want to send their child? To one of these colleges. We had a college counselor who sent a letter to us, uh, or a voicemail, excuse me, and said, I'm not going to let any Moms for Liberty uh, members' children into the schools. And there are counselors that are working on doing that together. Our answer back was, okay, we probably don't want our kids going to your school, right? Right. But explain to us from someone who's uh, you've spent, uh, you've spoken on college campuses, you've obviously spent quite a uh, bit of time in school. What are you seeing and what are you thinking about what's happening right now?
0: Well, I mean, it's concerning. I, I frequently speak at law schools, sometimes at undergraduate schools, and whether it's a private school or a public school, um, you know, there are usually protests. If you have a position that really does embrace free speech, meaning that it's okay also for conservatives to speak on campuses. If you have a belief that men and women are different, they're equal but complementary, and that um, you know it's wrong to give children permanent surgeries and life altering drugs, that maybe experimental medicine isn't the right tack to take right now. Those are the kinds of beliefs that in my case haven't just resulted in protests, but literally being escorted from buildings by police because of fear. Um, Yale Law School was one example that I had, which was actually the law students that became so unruly Um, At the same time, though, I I think that all the more reason that we need to have people willing to go into those places to be a light in the midst of darkness. But I don't think it's our students. Um, That's, you know, many times, again, as a person of faith, I will sometimes hear other people of faith say, well, scripture says we're to be salt and light. And so our students should be in these places and should be standing up to this. And I I think that there are some parents that don't have a choice but to have their kids in these schools, but I certainly at the higher education level, we do have choices Um, and using those choices wisely, investigating the schools is really important. And then if our students are in those places and we feel like they're ready, helping them, supporting them, I think it's much more difficult to be a parent right now. I mean, I look at the difference in my own kids. Um, I've got one that just graduated college. I've got one in college, nearly done. And then I have a high schooler. And my young high schooler, That parenting challenge is far different than what I had even with the others in that I have to more actively have these conversations. My kids are so tired of me sending to them podcasts from Barry Weiss on Honestly, since October 7th, but I'm insisting they listen to those accounts so that they are not deceived and then we talk about them. Um, So I think we're up to the challenge, but we have to be careful where we're putting our kids, what they're learning, And we have to stand up to higher ed. Stop giving to these institutions as families because they don't support your values. So, Kristen, um, I I mentioned before, Alia Shapiro uh, wrote
1: a piece in the Free Press. Um, I think it was published yesterday. And and I'm just going to quote from him quickly, and then I'd like to hear from you. He said, Those who care deeply about free speech are asking themselves many questions at this urgent moment. What should we make up the calls to punish Hamas apologists on campus? After all, this is America, where you have the right to say even the vilest things. Yes, many of the same students who on October 6th called for harsh punishment for microaggressions are now chanting for the elimination of the world's only Jewish state. But Americans are entitled to be hypocrites. Um, he, he says he then goes on to say that much of what of what we've witnessed on campuses over the past few weeks is not, in fact, speech, but conduct designed specifically to harass, intimidate, and terrorize Jews. Um, so Curious, uh, I think a lot of people are asking themselves that question, right? We value free speech, you know the and 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 what does that mean going forward in America um, with what we're seeing in the college campuses and how do we how do how can we all work together to protect free speech but also protect each other?
0: It's a very difficult issue because the speech right now that is um, advocating for Hamas or supporting Hamas is absolutely deplorable and disgusting and it's reprehensible. Um, I mean, I think I, everyone I know is so angry um, that our students would be suggesting that it's okay to to rape women and, and behead individuals. It's, it's just horrific. Um, and it reveals, I think, such a level of anti-Semitism that most Americans never knew was just so latent in our society. And we have to stand up against it. We have said, though, and I think it's the right principle that The answer to bad speech is more speech. It is not giving the government the power to restrict speech itself. And Ilya, who's a dear friend, makes the right point that there often is a a legitimate difference between what we're seeing now between what is protected speech and what is conduct. You still have to follow the rules, for example, in universities. You can't disrupt classrooms. You can't um, have sit-ins that violate the This is all conduct. It's not speech. And so universities have the tools that are necessary to ensure that It is a peaceful protest and peaceful speech. And it certainly doesn't mean that those who are engaged in the private market can't make decisions based on what someone else's speech is, um, within some parameters, obviously, that, that would make it legal. But I do think it's important that we go back to first principles, which is that if the government can silence or censor other people's speech, then it can censor all of us. And so in one sense, protecting that reprehensible speech is important because of the implications. But yet, much of what we're seeing on the streets and in the on the campuses violates the law and should be stopped because it's not speech; it's illegal conduct. Such a difficult
1: um, thing to think about and talk about, and 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 I think that um, many of us are worried, Kristen, about what the future of education looks like for our kids, right? I think many thought, well, oh, kids are going to go to college, right? They're going to graduate from high school. They'll go on to college. They'll hopefully be, you know, find a, a career that they're passionate about, that they can support their family and have a full life. And a lot of that's changing right now. So you're, I have uh, one in college, three still at home in, high, in middle school and high school. Um, you, you've talked a little bit about your family, some advice, for parents um, who are, are kind of reevaluating what the future of their children's education looks like?
0: I would first wanna give a word of encouragement just based on my own experience. Um, you know, I, I reflect back, there's a very poignant moment in my own parenting that I will never forget. Um, and it is one of the cases that I argued, uh, well, all three of the cases that I've argued have touched on some pretty sensitive cultural issues and were very controversial in the sense of the left disliking it. Um, But one of those cases was Masterpiece Cake Shop, and that involved the right of free speech. And it involved a cake artist who declined to design a custom cake that was to be used in a same-sex ceremony, but the cake had a message in it. And so the issue in the case was, first of all, was Colorado right to compare this cake artist, Jack Phillips' beliefs to those perpetrators of the Holocaust and slave owners, which the essentially judges in that case did in open court? And does he have the right to be able to create expression that celebrate messages that are consistent with his conscience? I mentioned that case because at that moment in 2017, it was far more controversial than it even is today. And I remember having a discussion with my daughter, who was about 15 at the time, just as I was heading to DC to argue the case. And we were in vehement disagreement um, about some issues underlying that case, about sexual ethics and about who were created to be and purpose in life. And at the time, I just felt so low um, as I was leaving to go to this argument that I needed to be up for. And I just thought, I'm, I'm arguing this at the Supreme Court and I'm losing it in my own home. And that would be a failure for me. But I have to tell you now, at the age of 21, my daughter is, I think, more conservative than I am. And I, will, the reason I tell that story is because the seeds that we plant, the actions, the way that we live in front of our children, the conversations we're willing to have to be open to debate these ideas and to truly listen to them, we will make progress and again, I, I, I know I'm a person of faith and perhaps not all your, your listeners are, but for me, my faith teaches me that the seeds that we plant will come back to harvest. And I have seen that in my parenting. I believe it's a human principle that plays out for all of us. So I want to encourage them in that. Even if you don't see progress right now, by being willing to have those conversations and to work on shaping your child's soul and their convictions, I do think it will bear fruit. And a second thing is be active in it, um, in the healthcare choices that you're making. You know, I used to have the doctors tell me to leave the room. There's not a chance in China that I'm going to leave that room right. and leave my child with a doctor. But also in the sense of education, knowing what's being taught and making active choices to ensure that your children are learning the facts, are learning that there is truth and what that truth is. And again, that falls on us, not on the government. So. We can do it, and I'm hopeful that we are doing it. I mean, with with groups like Moms for Liberty, giving other parents tools and giving them courage, when we all speak up, we all have more courage because courage begets courage. So I think it's a great time to be a parent and to be able to influence a nation, which in effect influences the world. Absolutely, America is a
1: beacon of light. Uh, for the rest of the world, and it's so incredibly important that we safeguard um, that. Um, So Kristen, I just want to thank you so much for joining us and telling us a little bit more about Alliance Defending Freedom. It's wonderful to know that a fellow mom is leading, is at the helm of such a wonderful organization. Um, and we will continue uh, building an army on the ground to defend parental rights. So thank you for your partnership uh, to all of the lawyers that we work with um, and staff at ADF. It's just wonderful. They take the time to explain so much to us and work alongside us in order to protect our, right, our rights and freedoms. And we appreciate you. Well, we appreciate you as well. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Can you let everyone know if they'd like to learn more about Alliance Defending Freedom or perhaps donate where they can
0: Sure. You can go to adflegal.org and you can also look, Google for parents and come up with that parents toolkit as well, which I find to be very helpful as I think about these issues.
1: Wonderful. Well, we have that up on the website. We'll make sure to share it out with this podcast. And again, Kristen, thank you very much. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas with your family. Thank
0: you. You too.